Hello, and welcome to the podcast, where we look at the Bible, theology, doctrine, tradition, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. We strip it all away, and we ask, what do I believe? Why? Is that even in the Bible? And we leave ourselves with a reconstructed faith. Yes, hello, and welcome back to Reconstructed Faith, or welcome, hello, if uh, this is your first time here, we where we look at tradition, um, we look at theology, and we weigh it against the biblical text, and we try and understand the Bible in its terms instead of ours. We get into the framework of, um, you know, the biblical authors, we try and get into their brains, and understand um, what words they wrote and why and what those words meant to them. And we use that as a context in, um, you know, looking at the Bible. And a lot of the times these traditional, um, traditional theology doesn't measure up when you understand the Bible on its terms. So that's the deconstruction part. And uh, then we have to then say, okay, well, then what does the text say? And uh, really, we make new doctrine, and we're building our own theological system here at Reconstructed Faith. I think that's important. Um, it's very popular right now to deconstruct your faith and not believe in much of anything outside Jesus. And um, I think... We live in a world that, a post-enlightenment world that is increasingly, um, you know, fooled by faux reason and faux logic and everything needs to just make sense and have a little bow on it and all the ducks in a row and um, all that. So because of that, we've started abandoning things like the resurrection and miracles and uh, we just can't do that. Those are, um, you know, those are the things that make Christianity work. Um, but what I do is we look at it super critically. We analyze the hell out of it so that we understand it and we can defend it. We are going to learn what we believe and why and uh, be able to explain it to others and or defend it against attack so that's what we do here um i'm sorry this is a week late it's been a rough couple weeks um between my son justin getting an insulin pump installed and that taking two two and a half days to really get his um insulin uh regiment figured out for the pump since it's a drip now and not a um, Lantus basal. So um, that took some adjustments and then just figuring out the technicalities of the technology took, well, it, it, it didn't take me very long. It took me just the doctor showing me, but um, as far as the kid's mom and their stepmom and everyone else figuring it out, um, they are not as 
technologically savvy as I am, so we're still um, figuring that out. Uh, my dad was ill for a couple days, and uh, we share a workspace, so I wasn't going to record while he was trying to rest. He told me I could, but I really wanted him to rest, so I just... With everything, I postponed recording for a week, and uh, here we are, a week late, but it will be worth it. Trust me, I hope that you guys are good, um, that everything going on with COVID and arguing over masks and Black Lives Matter, I really just hope you guys are safe, that um, you haven't personally been affected by any of these issues um, or your homes, or your families, and that everything is good, and that you are getting on okay. This is episode two of a five-part series on um, the essentials of the gospel. Now, don't get me wrong here. The gospel is simple, and sometimes it just needs preached simply. Y'all need Jesus. Just you know, we're all sinners, guilty against breaking God's law, the penalty of which is death and hell. But God doesn't want you to go to hell because he loves you, so he sent his son to die for you in your place, and all you need to do is accept that and believe, and you get to be with God forever. That is a simplicity of the gospel. It's a beautiful thing. I'm not trying to complicate the issue. But in the post-enlightenment world that we live in, um, simplicity isn't always enough. And I believe it is important that, um, like I covered in the last episode, we understand all of the intricate repercussions of sin so we can address those issues when they're asked us by skeptics or by the seeking non-believer who um, needs more than just to be told they need Jesus because they've heard that a hundred times in their life already. Uh, this is episode two. We are tackling hell. So uh, strap in. First, let's recap on sin real quick, just in case you didn't hear the last one. Um, it's super important. It is the, really, it's the basis that makes everything work together. And you'll see that as we continue to go through this series. We are born with original sin. It is our nature even if we are good people, in quotes, that is, to be esteemed well by others, um, sin is what we are in the core of our being. Sin is our identity, and we act out of what we are. We sin because we're sinners. And the wages of sin is death. I talked about the intricacies and the technicalities of that at length, in the last episode on sin, if you haven't heard that, you really should. It's really informative if I'm allowed to say that about my own stuff. Um, 
and that maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, okay, well, I haven't sinned against God um, at all. I am good. This doesn't apply to me. Let's go over just a few of the commandments here and uh, see if you still feel that way. So the first commandment, I am the Lord your God, have no other gods before me. Um, what's the most important thing in your life? Like, really? What do you think about when you wake up, when you go to bed? It probably isn't God, if you're honest with yourself. It is your job or your favorite TV show or some other thing that has taken over your mind and your heart in the place of where God should be. And uh, that's just the first commandment, by the way. Um, recap, lust is adultery. Uh, that's one of the commandments. Hate is murder. That's another one of the commandments. Wanting what someone else has, that's coveting, which is also one of the commandments. And we can go on and on and on, but that's not what this episode is about, and we already covered it. But that's a recap because it is important to understand sin. Because hell, which is our topic, is the final outcome of sin without the atonement of Christ. Okay? If heaven is God's kingdom and God is perfect and sinless and does not allow sin into his kingdom, if we do indeed have eternal souls, we must continue on somewhere else then, outside of God's kingdom. And that place is hell. So let's get started. What is hell? Or where is hell? Since it's a place, we can ask either one of those questions. Now, traditionally, we have understood the Bible on our terms. We have, um, you know, and it's not illogical. I'm not knocking anyone who does this, but we just need to tweak this perspective. We believe the Bible says exactly what it seems to to us from our perspective in our lives because it's a personal thing or whatever. Um, you know, and we're we're reading the Bible through our framework, how we were raised, our society, our socioeconomic class, and all of that is it, it, it is the filter by which we're reading the Bible. And um, that's how a lot of these traditions get formed. Um, rather than we need to learn the paradigm of the authors and what they be themselves believed about what they were writing and understand the Bible on its terms instead of ours. Um, so... Uh, because of this, the church has assimilated a lot of beliefs about hell that aren't from the Bible. Because to be honest, uh, even though there are over a hundred verses in the English Bible that are traditionally thought to tell us about hell, uh, if we look at the original languages and we look at the context and how those same words are translated in other places in the text, we are left with less than a quarter of those passages being definitive of hell. To further cloud the issue, a lot of those passages come prophetic books, 
meaning they are men trying to describe a divine rele- uh, revelation or vision in terms that they understand. And it is poetic and it is symbolic and therefore not literal. And the, and uh, so we can't take those passages literally. Uh, so when we... Uh, when we put those aside, we're left with a handful of verses. And those are what Jesus had to say about hell and what Paul and Peter had to say about hell, which sounds like a pretty great place to start, except the word in the Greek Christ used most was Gehenna, which was a burning garbage pile outside of Jerusalem that we, uh, at least this is the traditional thought. We're going to tackle this later. It's a burning garbage pile outside Jerusalem that Christ used as a word picture of what hell is like. So even that wasn't literal. He was using an illustration in describing hell. So what does that leave us? I wasn't sure exactly how I was going to do this episode. So we're just going to walk through my research, and at the end we can talk about my conclusion you know, what is definitive about hell? What is it? Where is it? Was it made for us? Is hell really forever? And are we sure? Okay. So my thought process here is to find all the verses in the Bible that can be seen as definitive about hell. So how do we do that? Well, I literally Googled every verse about hell in the Bible. It was that easy with all of the tools at our disposal um, these days with smartphones and tablets and computers in our pockets, um, you know, uh, uh, we have Bible apps that have every version We and Bible dictionaries and study notes and commentaries and concordances. It isn't that hard to do a word study, but let's do this together just in case you've never done it before and or you don't really know where to start. That's okay, too. So, the word hell appears 56 times in the King James Version of the Bible. 30 times it is translated from the word Sheol in the Old Testament. This, in fact, is the only word used to describe hell in ancient Hebrew. Or rather, the only word we translate as hell, if we're to be more correct, Although the word itself appears 33 other times in the Old Testament, 30 times translated as grave and 3 times as pit. So, you know I love background and how important it is, um, I believe, it is to understand what the writers themselves believed. So what does Sheol mean if we can translate it to mean hell, grave, and pit? What clue does that give us? What did the writers themselves believe about Sheol? What what did they believe it was, and why did they use that word? So we need to figure that out first. What is Sheol? And And then look at the verses where we translate this word as hell. Now let's be clear here. I'm not a King James Version guy for reasons that I'm actually going to get into in the future. I'm going to do a whole episode on the KJV controversy um, once I tackle 
all the issues I feel are far more important, but it is on the list. So what I will be using, um, we'll be using the KJV as the reference to kind of start. And then I'm going to, uh, I'll be using the Lexham English Bible, as well as the English Standard and the New American Standard for reference. The reason um, we're using the King James as the starting place for this episode is because we're tackling church tradition. And nothing has influenced the beliefs and theology of the church more than the KJV. So we need to start there to understand the more fundamental ideas on hell. Now, the reason I use the Lexham English Bible, the New American Standard, and the ESV specifically are as follows. The Lexham English Bible is a direct translation from the... Uh, Hebrew and the Greek lexicons with no cultural appropriation or transliteration or dynamic equivalents or any other tools typically used to make our Bibles seem like they were written in English. The New American Standard is considered by most biblical scholars when placed side by side with source material to be the most accurate literal word-for-word translation when compared to the original languages. Um, the NASB will sometimes use two or three words in the place of one Greek or Hebrew word for clarity of meaning. So I use the NASB for accuracy, and then I use the ESV because it is the most readable of the word-for-word style translations. So I use that for clarity Um and then we're going to use the Faith Life Study Notes, which are part of the Lexham English Bible, as well as the Lexham Bible Dictionary. So, first, let's look at what Sheol meant to the writers themselves. Sheol was believed by the Old Testament authors, well, prior to the Second Temple period, but uh, we're getting ahead slightly. A Sheol was believed by the Old Testament authors to be the dwelling place of the dead. All dead, righteous or wicked, animal or human, they believed all living creatures once dead literally descended to the pits of the earth to reside in Sheol. The innards of the earth underground, that's where this um, idea, you know, of heaven being up and hell being down and being under the ground and all that stuff comes from um, from the Jewish belief of Sheol. That being said, don't get me wrong, Sheol was not a fun place for anyone. Uh, it was considered a place of no return, of gloom and deepest dark despair and disorder. It's how Job described it. Again, remember... Sheol was the place of all dead, righteous, wicked, or otherwise. It didn't matter. Death was seen as the great equalizer, the end of all. We see David say in numerous psalms, For who can escape death, O Lord, and other similar sentiments. Now remember, we don't form theology from the psalms, but we can use the psalms to see what David thought about. Sheol. 
then it could not be escaped. So here we return to the idea from the last episode, then, that sin equals death, and that no one escapes sin, therefore everyone dies. This did begin to change in the Second Temple period, actually slightly prior. In the second half of Isaiah and in Daniel also, we see the idea for the first time of a resurrection. We see in Daniel 12 where Daniel wrote, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So we begin to see the Hebrews have a heaven and hell framework where Sheol, rather than being a final destination, um, is almost like a waiting room. We all descend to Sheol until Judgment Day when we receive either everlasting life or condemnation. We see this in the story of the rich man and Lazarus with the bosom of Abraham. If you believe the book of First Enoch at all, which isn't in the Bible, in case you were just like, where's the book of Enoch? I don't have that one. Um, it's an intertestamental um, writing found in the Dead Sea Scrolls that um, some believe was written by the Enoch in Genesis. Um, we don't really know that for sure. But we do know that the apostles, the apostles were, uh, were well-versed in the contents of Enoch. It is quoted by Jude in his letter. Jude, who was a brother of Jesus, by the way, in case you don't know. And Peter talks about the sin of the angels, which is a reference to the book of Enoch as well. So, even though it is not in our Bibles, we know that first century Near Eastern Jews believed in the contents of the book of Enoch enough to quote it and speak to its contents. So, Enoch was taken to a cave, okay, by the angel Raphael, where he saw four corners full of disembodied souls. One corner was illuminated in light from heaven. Enoch asked, what is what this place was? What is this place? He was told it was where the souls of the dead were kept. And those that were illuminated, blah, those that were illuminated belonged to Yahweh in the time of resurrection. Or something similar. That's my paraphrase. I've only skimmed Enoch. It's really hard to find a modern translation. Um, and also the Latter-day Saints have what they call the Book of Enoch as well. So it's hard to find the real deal with the Mormon counterfeit floating around out there. So with all of that in mind, what David had to say about Sheol, uh, that we understand it just being a place where all the dead go, um, and then what Enoch, what Enoch was shown by the angel Raphael, if it is indeed, um, you know, authentic, then there's just a place where all of our souls go, and that is Sheol, which is the word we see uh, repeatedly in the Old Testament that um, repeatedly gets translated as hell in the King James. So 
With that in mind, it makes total sense that earlier mentions of Sheol, such as those in the Pentateuch, that is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, for those who don't know that term, it simply means five books. And in the writings of David and Solomon, uh, we often, not always, see Sheol translated as grave. And we don't see hell show up until Solomon's kingdom. So, later in the text. We do know, okay, now that we know what Sheol is, or at least what the Old Testament writers themselves had in mind when they used the word Sheol, we can look at these verses on hell and see what we can learn from that perspective. Interestingly enough, when I looked at all 30 passages that translate as Sheol, that translate Sheol as hell in the King James Version, when I looked at those in the ESV, the NASB, or the Lexham notes, none of them are translated as hell. It gets translated literally as Sheol because when the authors were writing, they were speaking of the place of the dead and not hell as we think of it today. That is understanding the Bible on its terms. The confusion comes from the fact that the KJV translators simply translated the text. They did not try to understand the beliefs of the writers themselves, and as we've just learned, Sheol did not mean hell. It was simply a place of the dead. So, if we can't use the Old Testament at all to get a glimpse of hell because it is certainly um, the text is simply true of what they believed of Sheol, then the Old Testament is worthless to our search for the true nature of hell. So let's move forward and look at the New Testament. Hell is mentioned 23 times in the New Testament in the KJV. As per usual, we'll be checking all of these verses in the ESV, the NASB, and the LEB, as well as using the Faith Life Notes in the Bible Dictionary for clarity. There's three words translated as hell in the New Testament. Gehenna, Hades, and Tartarus. So we're going to tackle each of those on their own terms, understand what those words meant, to the authors and to, um, in the case of Jesus, the speaker, what they would have meant to him and to his audience and why that word was used and um, not simply a word that means hell like we think of it. So let's look at the word Gehenna. It is found 12 times in the New Testament Greek, always translated as hell. So what is Gehenna? And what does that mean? And why was that word used? Well, the popular scholarship is that Gehenna was a burning garbage pile in the valley outside Jerusalem, and that Jesus used this word to fill the minds of followers with this idea of unending fire and the unending stench of decay. That it was figurative. He was using an illustration to, uh, you know, make it clear that you don't want to go to hell by using a word that was the grossest thing they could think of. But, 
But this burning garbage pile didn't exist until the Middle Ages. It was during the Crusades around 1200 AD-ish or so that we begin to see this usage of the word Gehenna, um, the usage as meaning a garbage pile. If we look back further, the word first came into use in the intertestamental, second temple period. It was the Valley of Hinnom, which is a valley that runs from Mount Zion to the Dead Sea, and, un and until the Davidic kingdom, it was the border between the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. It was a place that the Maccabees would use to burn the bodies of their enemies before that. It was defiled by King Manasseh as a place used for the ritual sacrifice of children to false idols. Pardon me, I really need some water here. Um, my four-year-old is going through this no-I-don't-want-to um, phase. And um, let's just say I've been doing a lot of yelling. Not that I recommend yelling at your children, but none of us are perfect. Um, I have a pretty harsh voice to start with, so any kind of extra strain just kind of makes it worse. Um, but let's get back to the text. So Gehenna was a place that the Maccabees, well not Gehenna rather, but... Um, the Valley of Hinnom was a place that the Maccabees would use to burn the bodies of their enemies. And before that, it was defiled by King Manasseh as a place used for the ritual sacrifice of children to false idols. So it definitely has a history of death and torment. And it began to be called Gehenna in the 2nd century BC during the uh, uh, period of the Maccabees. So it has a, a history of death and torment, as I said, and it was it was this reference to intertestamental usage by the Maccabees that Christ was most likely referencing. Um, you know, that's what he would have grown up knowing that word to mean: the burning bodies by the Maccabees in a place where the fire is not quenched and their worm does not die. That's a quote from Mark, by the way. So let's just go down the list here, go through the New Testament. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 5. It says in the ESV in verse 22, fiery hell. Verse 29 and 30 simply say hell. Is there a reason for this distinction? Different levels of hell, maybe? Maybe it's not all just a pit of fire. I don't know yet. Let's keep going. Specifically, those verses read as follows. Verse 22 but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Hmm. Did you catch that? Catch that. Not just hell, but the hell of fire. Maybe there's more than one. Is it or is it merely emphasis? Let's move on. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. 
For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Verse 30, And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So we can see here the image of being thrown into hell or going into hell. But no mention of fire in these verses. Why the distinction? Let's keep going. This is actually really fun for me to do a word study like this. It's uh, something I've never actually done before. You know, this podcast is just as much for me as it is an opportunity for me to guide others. Hopefully together we can all question those things which we've been taught that are from tradition or from a given theological system, and we can look at what the Bible really says about stuff. And that's the whole idea here at Reconstructed Faith. That's why I do what I do. So let's continue our journey through the New Testament looking at hell. I'm going to save any conclusions for the end, and hopefully we can come away with enough information to form our own idea about hell based on what the Bible says, and we can strip away Milton and Dante and Greco-Roman thoughts on Hades that have all worked their way into what the church claims to be true about hell. My goal with this study is nothing less than a fully formed theology on hell. Okay, so Matthew 10 verse 28 says in the Lexham Bible, um, and do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but instead be afraid of the one who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Hmm. Destroy. This is figurative, of course, right? We know that hell is forever, and that Jesus is simply telling us not to fear men, because they can only kill our bodies but to fear God who has the power to eternally separate us to kill, in quotes, our soul. I mean, that's gotta be it, right? Maybe. I don't really know yet. We need more information. So now we've got one verse that speaks of fire, two that don't, and now one that talks about destroying our souls in hell. Hmm. So what does that all mean? Moving on. Matthew 18, verse 9, same as the stuff in Matthew 5. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better to live life with one eye than be thrown into the hell of fire with two. Okay, so now we're back to the hell of fire talk. Maybe it's all just interchangeable and I'm overthinking. Well, I don't know. We're talking about lust in this particular passage, and Jesus is speaking to his disciples and not a crowd. Are they more accountable? Worse punishment to those who should know better? Hmm. Interesting idea. Let's keep going. We are still on the word Gehenna, after all, and we have Hades to look at, and the one account of the word Tartarus as well. Uh, Matthew 23, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees the first time he calls them sons of hell. It, it, it was a slang. He was calling out their corrupt ways and later calls them the brood of vipers. 
that is children of snakes. A modern colloquialism would be sons of bitches. But that's a side note. A fun side note, but a side note nonetheless. Jesus was like, you sons of bitches are evil. All of you. And when you go and convert someone else, you make them just as evil as you are. It makes me sick. That's my Jesus. I'm not sure which you Jesus you serve, but that's mine. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> but back to business. Chapter 23, verse 33. After Jesus calls them sons of bitches, he asks how you are to escape being sentenced to hell. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? This is the first time we see the idea of being sentenced to hell, that it is a judgment. Paul loved to use legal terms, but this is one of the few times Jesus spoke of judgment and being sentenced. Sentenced to hell. Hmm. So is it like being sentenced to jail or community service or something as the punishment for a crime? Well, yeah. The crime is sin, after all, and we are all guilty. But let's move on. We will get to that at the end when we try and piece this all together. We find Gehenna three times in Mark. It's the same as the passage in Matthew. If your hand causes you to sin, foot, eye, cut it off, pluck it out. But here we see the addition of the phrase unquenchable fire. And we see the clear reference to the picture of the Valley of Hinnom, or Gehenna, where worm does not die and fire is not extinguished. We see Gehenna one place in Luke, and it is Jesus telling us whom to fear. The Luke version reads, But I will warn you who to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. The one instance of the word, the one instance of the word Gehenna outside the Gospels is in James. And it's not really in reference to hell. James is talking about controlling your tongue. Okay, so... Matthew by far has the most occurrences of the word Gehenna over the other Gospels, and the rest of the New Testament that uses Hades, since one exception. Why? Well, Matthew was written by a Jew, the Apostle Matthew, to the Jews. It was a Gospel account of Jesus to align him with Messianic prophecy and prove to the Jews that Jesus was the prophesied Messiah. So Matthew used the word Gehenna in his writing because I believe Jesus himself used this word. Keep in mind, the Hebrews still had no word for hell as we think of it today. They still believed in Sheol, okay? But in the Second Temple... So in the 400 years between the Old and New Testaments, this word Gehenna began to be used by priests and scribes to describe a place of eternal torment. They believed that upon death, one would descend to Sheol until the Day of Judgment, when you would either be lifted out of Sheol by Yahweh or condemned to the pit, which was like Gehenna, a place of never-ending fire and darkness. They had no word for this place. So they began to use the word Gehenna itself. This would have been the tradition that the first century Jews would have learned. 
Paul, as well as the other apostles and all Jewish males, including Jesus, would have been familiar with this concept of a lower pit of Sheol, and would have themselves used the word Gehenna to describe it to other Jews. What this tells me is that any of the current any occurrence of the word Gehenna in the New Testament, so the twelve or thirteen we just looked at, can can be seen as definitive of hell. So we are beginning to get somewhere. Where, I'm not sure, but somewhere. So in the Greek, the next most common word we see translated as hell is the word Hades. The word for the Greek underworld, which was similar to Sheol, actually, in that it was the place of all dead, good or bad. Everyone went to the underworld. Now, there were different levels and different places within the underworld you could end up based on your life, but it wasn't hell because everyone went there. Also, you could escape and such because Greek mythology. <laughs> so, if we look up the biblical definition of Hades, my Bible dictionary says that Hades referred to simply death or the grave in the time of the New Testament. Or as in the case of Revelation, it is sometimes used to personify hell as a satanic-type character akin to the Greek god of the same name. So Hades was basically a word that meant the same thing as Sheol. In the Greek, it was just a place of the dead and not specific to hell at all. When we look at the instances of Hades in the New Testament, we see Jesus use it once. Well, it's in both Matthew and Luke, so it's in the Bible twice, but it's the same event. He's condemning um, Capernaum. Uh, you know, he's saying, I have performed all these miracles. You've seen all these signs and wonders and still do not repent. If I had done these miracles in Sodom, they would have been spared. But instead... You will be drug into Hades. Well, Sodom was destroyed. So I really do believe Hades here just means death or grave. Due to their unrepentance, Jesus is saying they will be destroyed as Sodom was, uh, which they were in, um, you know, when I think Capernaum lasted till the Crusades, when it was finally burned. But it was, it was destroyed. So, uh, so due to their unrepentance, Jesus is saying they will be destroyed as Sodom was. So I don't believe the context itself lends, uh, lends it to being indicative of hell at all. Um, every other time outside of the book of Revelation that we see the word Hades in the New Testament, it is a quotation of the Old Testament where Sheol was used in the Hebrew. Uh, we see this in Acts chapter 2 and in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, Revelation gets interesting, of course. We see Hades spoken of as a person, but we also see death riding a horse. So, uh, <laughs> we also see death riding a horse. So, I think anyone who tries to get any literal meaning out of these passages and use them to form any kind of definitive theology believes some really weird stuff. <laughs> Did you think I was going to say they were wrong or that they were fools? 
or that they even need to get their head examined. No, but if you believe this, they believe some really weird stuff um, with death riding a horse and whatnot. So, don't get me wrong, I'm in no way saying I don't believe the book of Revelation. It is the Bible. It is the inspired word of God, and every word is true. However, there are many kinds of truth, and many levels of how something can have meaning. A lot of prophecy is metaphor and allegory. Now, metaphors still mean stuff. They use this thing to describe that thing. Allegory is a metaphorical story. The events themselves aren't literal, but their underlying principles um, are true. It uses the story to teach the message. Why? Well, well, we'll get back to what I talked about in What is the Bible? If you haven't listened to that, you should. I discuss mytho-historical narrative and allegory and the types of literature we find within the Bible. If you would rather believe it's all a textbook and says exactly what it seems to, that's fine. I just think heaven for you is going to be a lot different than what you expect. And what I'm trying to accomplish with this podcast is getting people to understand the Bible on its terms, not theirs. To work their mind within the biblical mindset, not work the Bible within their mindset. We have a tendency for the last few hundred years to read the Bible backwards because unfortunately here in America we've been super influenced by Unitarianism and the Enlightenment movement in the way that we think, even down to what we consider traditional theology. And I'm trying hard to strip that away and understand the Bible on its terms. Anyway, that was a tangent. Revelation is prophetic, and we can't use prophecy alone to form theology. That is why it is so important to look at prophecy within the biblical context and compare it to other non-prophetic passages to glean meaningful theology. Okay, so with that being said, let's look at the word Tartarus. That is used in Second Peter. Uh, Tartarus was the lowest part of Hades in Greek mythology. Um, Hades was made up of the Elysium, where heroes went when they died, where they would hunt and feast for eternity. Um, most people went to the field of Aspherus, where which was basically just roaming around aimlessly for eternity. And then there was the fields of punishment for evildoers where each person experienced their own punishment. Um, you know, like the guy that had to push a stone uphill forever or the guy who was chained to a chair with food and drink just out of reach forever. Tartarus was the lowest level of Hades. It was a living pit. Tartarus itself was alive. And it was reserved for the Titans and other enemies of the gods. And it was ruled by Hades himself and was a hell in the classic sense with pits of fire and such. So Peter was addressing the sin of angels. Satan, his followers, uh, uh, 
Uh, also, many believe this to be about the Watchers and the Fathers of the Nephilim as well, which is more stuff from Enoch. Um, this passage is actually super deep, but I'm going to stay on the topic of hell since that's what we're covering um, today. So, I think it's interesting that Peter specifically used the image of Tartarus and didn't simply say um, Gehenna. If we believe that Peter did indeed have the power to bind and loose, both in heaven and hell, while a super-Catholic idea, Jesus did say this, so we can't dismiss that idea. Um, to go along with that power was perhaps a clearer picture of how it all works. Because if we look at the whole passage that surrounds Tartarus, it is the clearest picture of hell and how it all works. Let's look at what Peter has to tell us about hell. Second Peter 2, starting at verse 4. Now this is in the ESV for clarity of understanding as I discussed earlier. Verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, he, uh, he goes on to talk about Noah and his family, and then, then things get pretty interesting. I want you to pay super close attention here. He says, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Hmm. Okay. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Extinction? Hmm. Also, we see more language of being kept in darkness until judgment. More scriptures to back up the idea of Sheol type place, waiting area for our souls and such. Let's look at one more idea and that is the classic lake of fire and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now we've seen a few passages about hell of fire already. That's the classic view. So I think it's important that we get to the truth of the lake of fire. So in Matthew chapter 8, he says, uh, 13, he says in verses 42 and 50, Jesus says, throw them into the into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says this twice. In Matthew 25, he tells us that those to the left of him that he does not know will be told, depart from me. You cursed. <clears throat> In Matthew 25, let's start this again. He tells us that those to the left of him that he does not know will be told, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Okay. Well, that transitions well to Revelation, doesn't it? Follow me here, it gets pretty interesting. And I'm curious to see if you see what I see once I start laying all this out in order. Um... 
Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 15. And anyone's name who was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. Do we see the difference there? For the devil and angels, John specifically mentions that torment is forever and ever. Why? And then for all those not on the land's book of life, he calls hell the second death? This is back to back. I think it really lines up with other verses that speak of God destroying the body and soul and the fate of Sodom being the fate of non believers. Now, I am not stating anything definitively. I don't think the Bible is clear enough in its language to have a clear picture of hell other than, other than that there is a hell and that it is a place of torment, a place of darkness, sorrow, and anger, aka weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think an argument can be made from the biblical narrative, okay, that when we die, we go to some kind of soul lobby area, a waiting area akin to Sheol, and then on the day of judgment, we are resurrected to be judged, and we, and we are either in God's kingdom or outside of it. Now, anywhere outside of God's kingdom in the new heaven and earth is hell, including the eternal pit of fire, which was made specifically to punish divine beings who rebelled against God such as the devil and his demons and the watchers who were the fathers of the Nephilim and the entirety of the ancient divine council who led men astray. Of these things, I'm certain. I think the text is definitive enough about these that I am certain. Now, there is language to suggest that for humans, hell is not eternal. Jesus says the fire is eternal. It is stated specifically for Satan that torment was forever. Why did John need to make the differentiation, the distinction, if we all burn forever? I'm not saying this is definitive, okay? But you could read the text that we've been that we burn for a time, as proportionate to our sin and then our soul is destroyed in the lake of fire. Jesus does say to fear him who can destroy soul. Hell is called the second death a few places. We're given Sodom as an example of the fate of the wicked. And Sodom isn't still over there in the Holy Lands burning, is it? No, it was burned up in fire and brimstone, reduced to ashes, and there is very little left. Just a few ruins we think may have been Sodom, but there's not enough left to even know for sure. Or another idea from the text is that not everyone goes to the pit of fire. If you use Peter's image of Tartarus, where there are different parts of hell, then there is heaven, which is God's kingdom, and then perhaps there's a part of hell that is just being outside of heaven. We can see the kingdom, but can never enter forever being left to wander outside the gates 
with the realization that we will never get in. And then the lake of fire, where Satan burns forever and ever, and we may or may not burn forever. The text isn't really clear. Again, I will reiterate, the part of this you need to walk away with is this. There is a hell. And unless you end up in God's kingdom, it's the only other place for you to go. It is full of darkness, sorrow, anger, and at least for some, if not all of us, a lake of fire that burns forever and ever. Because just in case forever isn't long enough, it's forever and ever. Okay? So we have established more or less that there is a hell and what it is like within the context of what the within the context of what is clearly laid out in the scriptures now the idea of hell and how a loving god could condemn those that don't worship him to eternal torture is one of the largest stumbling blocks to the modern to the modern critical thinking agnostic I think it is important for us as Christians to be able to answer these sorts of questions and address these concerns. Because let's be honest, the idea of hell is pretty awful, and I would probably have a problem with it if I wasn't firm in my salvation. We don't do the world any good just going around telling everyone that Jesus is the answer to everything, which is true. It's true, of course it's true, but it isn't practical. When Paul tells us to be in the world, this is what he means. Look at the way Paul addressed people's issues. He actually talked about them and addressed their concerns. And yes, his answer was always Jesus, but he gave the why and the how, not simply the who. And I believe that is what we should strive for as Christians. So that being said, let's tackle this objection to hell. Let me counter with this idea. Heaven is God's kingdom, yes? Heaven is being in the presence of God forever, yes? Now, imagine this. You don't like God. You think he's an egotistical bully for making people worship him and threatening them with hell. In fact, if God is like you think he is, God is evil and you hate him. Do you really want to be with that God forever in his kingdom? Just imagine being stuck with such an awful creature forever. And not only that, but everyone around you loves him and is worshiping him. It makes you sick. That is what it would be like to be in heaven for those who don't love God. Because God loves you, because God loves you, and didn't force himself on you in life, he's not going to force himself on you in death. You don't want to be with God. You don't have to be. That's fine. He gives you what you think you want and sends you to a place where there is no God and you are finally free from his tyranny. But as we covered already, there are two options. God's kingdom or hell. So really, it is you sending your own self to hell because you don't want God. God loves you, and he doesn't want you to be in hell. 
He's shown you the way out. He's paid the price of admission. And all you need to do is accept the gift. But you choose not to. Is that God's fault or yours? Last time we covered sin. We understand that we are sinful by nature, already guilty from birth, and that the penalty of sin is death. We also understand now the reality of hell, the second death, which is our sentence, which we all deserve, by the way. Don't you for a second think that you are perfect, because that is God's standard, by the way, perfection. So, are you perfect? I'm not. Well, crimes deserve punishment. We have all committed crimes against God and deserve punishment. God gives out one sentence. Hell, which we all deserve. But hell is awful. And because God loves you, he doesn't really want you to end up there. So what do we do about our crimes and our punishment? Well, next time... We will look at the Jewish sacrificial system, the life of Christ and his death, and why it is imperative we believe in the crucifixion, why it's important, and how it all works. See you guys next time. Thank you for listening to Reconstructed Faith, where we examine what we believe, question everything in order to understand it better. I hope that this has stretched your mind, blessed your heart, and touched your soul, and you are one step closer to reconstructed faith.